Welcome to From What If to What Next, the podcast where anything is possible. I'm Rob Hopkins and I'm your host on our adventures into a future that may appear initially to be impossible, but on closer examination is anything but. This wildly imaginative podcast is able to exist and to flourish because of its Patreon subscribers, to whom I'm immensely grateful. If you're listening and you haven't yet joined up to support what we do here, please do. It makes all of this possible. Because fear kills everything, Mo had once told her, your mind, your heart, your imagination. So wrote Cornelia Funke in her novel Inkheart. One of the things that was a revelation to me while researching from what is to what if was the impact that trauma can have on our ability to live imaginative lives. The hippocampus, the part of the brain responsible for memory and imagination, when exposed to trauma can contract, reducing our ability to think about the future in hopeful and positive ways. Research shows that growing up in poverty can result in a measurably smaller hippocampus as can post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, stress and depression. Trauma runs through our cultures, handed down often unconsciously from generation to generation. It shapes who we are and what we do. Wars, slavery, patriarchy, child abuse, violence, homophobia, alcohol and drug dependency, environmental degradation, genocide, systemic racism and inequality all leave a deep legacy of trauma which underpins, often unconsciously, who we are and how we act. As Susan Raffo, one of our guests today, puts it, everything has a history. Every pattern of power and oppression has a history behind it. These patterns are held in our bodies, passed down from parent to child, turned into culture, protected as the ways in which we survive. Everything started somewhere. Everything has a before. And to frame why it is that we're dedicating a whole podcast to this subject of trauma, our other guest, Stacey K. Haynes, has, writing in Yes magazine, put it so beautifully. It is essential to connect trauma healing and movements for social justice. They are interdependent. Together, they let us become whole and build a just and sustainable future. And so to our discussion today, which I'm so excited to get into, which will focus on this vital field of trauma, on how it might be to live in a world where all of our institutions and focus was directed to creating the best conditions and the best processes for ending this cycle so that it stops here. A big question, but we like big questions. So our question for today's episode of From What If to What Next is, what if we address the trauma that lies beneath the world's problems. I'm so thrilled to be joined by two brilliant, brilliant guests to help me explore this. Susan Raffo is a body worker, cultural worker and writer. For the last 15 years, she's focused her work through the lens of healing justice with a particular interest in supporting individual and collective practices of safety and wellness. This also means attending to how generational and historical trauma shapes the present moment, including both internalised and systemic supremacy. She's the editor of Queerly Classed, Gay Men and Lesbians Write About Class, and Restricted Access, Lesbians on Disability. She spent her first seven years of adulthood living in Bristol, England, particularly shaped by the anti-imperialism and sustainability movements of the 1980s, the protests at Greenham Common being an especially life-shaping experience. She's lived in South Minneapolis in the US for 30 years with her awesome partner Rocky and their daughter Luca. And Stacey K. Haynes is a national leader in the field of somatics, specialising in intersecting personal and social change. She's the co-founder of Generative Somatics, a 
multiracial social justice organisation, bringing somatics to social and climate justice leaders and organisations. She specialises in somatics and trauma and leads programmes for healers, therapists and social change leaders to transform the impact of individual and social trauma and violence. Her new book, The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing and Social Justice, is based on that work. And she's also author of Healing Sex, A Mind-Body Approach to Healing Sexual Trauma, and is the founder of Generation 5, a community-based organisation whose mission is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations. And I'll post links to find out more about both of their work in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and you're very, very welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here and great to be here with you, Susan. Likewise, we, as as you already know, Rob, Stacey and I know each other, so it's quite a gift to be in conversation as the three of us. Wonderful. Great. So I'd like to start with the exercise that we do at the start of every episode of this podcast. And I'd like to invite you to get comfortable and to close your eyes. And I'd like you to imagine that you're traveling forward and you can do this at home as well, feeling the years rush past you like wind, traveling to 2030. And the 2030 that you emerge into in many ways looks the same, but in other ways is profoundly transformed. It's a future that's the result of everything that could possibly have been done to make the world as low carbon, equal, just, resilient, beautiful, biodiverse and beautiful as it could have been, having been done. It's the result of the previous 10 years having been a revolution of the imagination. It's a world that is the result of everything we could possibly have done to address the trauma that in 2020 lay unaddressed beneath the world's problems, institutions, policy, funding, everything has been redesigned towards that goal. Can you walk us through it? Describe it to us. What would that future look like, sound like, smell like and taste like? Stacy. Oh, exciting. I love that you asked this question. Of course, I wish you would have given me 50 years and not just 10, but I'm going to roll with that. It's all possible in 10. <laughs> you know, what I what I see, and this is kind of uh, uh, imagined from somatics too, like somatics really understands that our conditions train us in certain practices, and then we embody those and perpetuate them even when we don't mean to. So really what shifted is, first of all, we've really shifted out of a racialized capitalism. And there's been this radical redistribution of wealth and land to the commons. And that there's a deep understanding and collective practice that says, I'm well if we're well, and we're well if the earth is well. And really our institutions, our structures, and our practices is deeply informed by that radical reorientation, really, that we've shifted away from the isolation, the trauma, and the exploitation of accumulation, and really um, remembered in many ways. I see it as a remembering, but remembered that that I'm well when we're well, when, when we're connected to the planet, and the planet is well. We also had this amazing truth and reconciliation process, and that happened on a number of levels. And, you know, when I imagine that there's you know, our families were a part of it. We were a part of it, right? It kind of irrespective of age. And in that truth and reconciliation, we really faced into our profound harming and exploitation of other peoples and of the planet. And inside of that, made reparations, apologized, looked at the collective trauma and were able to 
to move through that trauma together, right? With that space being held for those who are harmed to get to heal and transform and those who did harm to get to heal and transform coming back into that wholeness. So there's really a practice and an understanding of that, that truth and reconciliation or that collective healing process that happened. We also just did an amazing job of not using plastics, not using fossil fuels, and really nourishing the soil to capture all that carbon that we'd emitted and um, are in a really different relationship with the land. We really produce our food for the most part locally. Um, we, we replenish what we take in the soils, with the waters, with the animals. <clears throat> There's been a really big innovation in refrigeration. We refrigerate in a really different way than I'm not sure what it is, but I know we do it differently. <laughs> and um, it's just a given that we have universal health care for all and all different kind of healing practices that are a part of that. And then the last thing, because there's so much to say as I played with this, is so much more of our time individually and collectively is spent on art, is spent in dance, is spent in the kind of creativity that is both has a personal expression in it, but is also aware of and serves um, the whole. So there's this room for creativity, there's this room for exploration, really that feeds all of us and builds our resilience. And all pause there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Susan. Oh, I, I, I was wondering how this was going to go with the asking the both of us. And Stacey, I was so curious what you were going to say. And so I'm really grateful that this is the order that just happened. I'm like, if you trust it. Because I'm, I'm remembering um, when Alexis Pauline Gum says that time is always circular and that our descendants who know what it is to live on the other side of the wounds that are not yet healed are already here just as our ancestors who remember who we were before are already here. And so I'm going to take what um, I'm going to say and lay it right next to Stacy's and have them, you know, really talk to each other because I had the same thing, Stacy, come up around the 10 years, like, oh, you know, wow, I, I, I want to do that kind of spell casting. And I started thinking that, like, you know, the, so trauma is a form of disconnection, right? It is when there is something has, that has happened to us individually or collectively that was overwhelming for our system, that is more than what we could be with in the present moment. And then there wasn't the space or the support or the care or the cultural practices to enable us to, um, to live with that overwhelm and to integrate it over time. And right, that's where wisdom is born, is the integration of those things that stretch us um, massively. And so trauma is when that can't happen and it's held. And then as you said so beautifully in your um, opening frame, it is then passed down um, from generation to generation, both genetically, through um, cultural practices, and then through the systems around us that have been shaped by that trauma. And so I was thinking in 10 years, what can happen that is about connection where there's disconnection? And Stacey, what you just did so beautifully, which I'm so glad for, because I was like, I don't want to say all this is just names. Here are what things look like when we are in a place of connection, right? Here is the way that our, the system of our world, the structure of our world, the way we're in relationships, honor that we are connected to each other as opposed to assuming the disconnection that is then shaped by power, by supremacy and, and depression, and also by grief and rage that's not expressed. And so for me, I want to say that the 10 years feel that what's possible is that we can have intention, right? 
the intention that is prayer, that is casting spells, that is strategy to be what Stacy just named in ways where we can name that as structure, but we also have no idea what that looks and feels like. Very few of us, certainly probably the people listening to this podcast, very few of us live in the deep intimacy of what Stacy just named. So for me, the 10 years is about actually being able to come collectively to wanting that and to wanting that more than we want our comfort with the present moment that is, right? Because our comfort in the present moment, and by here the we is super complicated because it's, you know, it's based upon gender, race, all of the social constructs. It's also based on how we experienced our childhood, what our relationship is to the land that's around us. All of those things shape how comfortable we are in the present moment. So to go towards that, to go towards being able to be intimate with what Stacy just named is also about being willing to not be with the comfort of what we know today. And so that middle space is all about intention and healing. And I often think of, you know, when I think about healing, I think of it as having like three different steps, which it doesn't. There's no such thing as parts of healing, but it helps my brain that likes to, to understand things to break apart, right? And that first piece is, is ending violence, right? Both the violence that's happening from the external world towards somebody's body, whether from people or systems, and the violence we carry in our bodies that says, I must be smaller rather than big. I can't trust people who tell me they love me. And it doesn't matter that I long for, I have intention. It's not going to happen. So it's ending violence. Then the second piece for me, the overlapping circle is that we have self-care practices, right? So in the present moment, we do things that support us to be with what is overwhelming in a way where we can integrate it and shape it so it doesn't then carry forward to become another form of generational trauma, another layer of it. And then that third piece is that we create the conditions for deep healing to emerge, you know, and creating the conditions means that, you know, in the way that you can't make transformation happen, you can't make liberation happen, you create the conditions for it to emerge. I think that deep healing that transcends time is part of that. And so in the 10 years, there's intention. And so for me, intention, like, it matters when I think about the trauma that prevents what Stacy just named. It matters that we are people who are living on Turtle Island, who are living in what is now called the U.S., talking to somebody who lives in England. And you, Rob, mentioned this morning you were talking to somebody who lived in Australia, is that we are all shaped by some very similar forms of, of trauma, of collective historical generational trauma, right? We are all shaped by, you know, I often think how um, many of the people who told the stories that became the United States had this deep identity with being Angles and Saxons, right? And so, so much of those histories impact us. So within that, the, the last piece I'll say is this intention kind of goes in two directions. One direction is to re-listen to what are the harms, what gets in the way of us actually feeling each other right now and feeling as the most liberatory, radical, dramatic, the things that make possible what Stacy named. What gets in the way? What are the histories here? And then the other piece is looking in what has our impact been on people around us because of how we've been hurt, you know? So in these next 10 years, intention would look like for all of those of us who have been impacted by British Empire, you know, what is our intention in relationship to that? both recognizing that there's harm that each of us in different ways in the we have experienced, and then there's harm that's been enacted. Um, all of this is like, what, is it, what happens if we sit together 
over these next 10 years that we can actually come to a place of being willing to be with this because there's a gap because of the trauma we've experienced between this and being able to be what Stacy just named. But we have to have what Stacy just named. Otherwise, there's no reason to sit in the discomfort. Mm. Wow. Thank you both so much. And uh, I wanted to start by asking what we mean by trauma, what it is and where it comes from. And Susan, you gave a, early on in, in, in what you were saying there, you gave a, a good kind of a definition or a description of trauma. I wondered, Stace, if there's anything you'd like to add to that so that we have a, we enter this conversation with a clear understanding of what we mean by trauma. Susan described it beautifully as well. I'm going to give a little bit of a somatic definition of trauma. Trauma are really experiences and they can be individual experiences or collective experiences, right? Social norms that are oppressive, that are power over also cause trauma. But it's really when our inherent needs for safety, belonging, and dignity, when that those inherent needs, when they get impacted and then broken apart inside of us. So, so again, from the somatic vantage point, we have adaptations to respond to threat. We have adaptations to respond to trauma. You know, people have heard fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate. Those are inherent, are inherent kind of wise capacities to respond to threatening or scary situations. What makes it trauma? Because we also inherently know how to heal from those right? Like we can respond, we can take the action, and then that can process through our mind, body, or our somas. What really causes trauma is when we're not able to process through those threats or those breaks or those violations or those betrayals. And our survival strategies get really generalized. So let's say because of being violated as a child, I have a deep freeze response and an appease response. And because I wasn't able to get the support or to process through those violations, that generalizes inside of our somas, inside of our experience. And we keep doing it even when we no longer need to. We generalize it into multiple contexts. And that trauma, those traumas, really define our whole lived experience, our relationships and our capacities to really navigate life, love and the world. So inside of us, safety, belonging and dignity, these inherent needs should co-support each other. And in violations that become trauma, it's almost like they are at odds with each other. So I can be safe, but I can't be connected. I can be connected, but I have to give up my dignity. I can be dignified, but I might not be safe and I might be isolated, which is just a setup for further harm, trauma, and pain. That's really how somatics looks at trauma are these inherent wise survival responses that might have us numb again or push against and they get generalized and we can't not do them. They're embodied. And then we store those traumatic experiences. We store those impulses toward protecting ourselves and others in contractions, in numbness, in, well, all kinds of things um, that don't then serve our lives and, and, and serve our, you know, who we can be to each other and the difference we can make in the world. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Susan, you, you traced some, 
trauma back to Anglo-Saxon patterns and, you know, trauma has gone unaddressed for millennia. How does this manifest in the world around us and in particular on the forces driving the social ecological crisis that's so evident around us today? How is unaddressed trauma playing out around us uh, in 2020? For me, there's like there's a ladder, right? And it's not a, a single ladder. It's a it's a it's a spiral. It's a constant circle, right? And in the beginning, um, and I'm what I'm about to say, I want to be very careful because I think that um, there is a propensity for many of us to romanticize what I'm about to say. Um, but there, in the beginning, there is culture, right? And culture that knows itself in relationship to all aliveness, that supports all aliveness. And aliveness is not an individual thing. It is a collective thing, and collective thing exists in relationship to, to land, which is the beginning place, and all that is supported by that land. So there is a knowing of self in relationship to land. We live in a time where there are indigenous communities on Turtle Island, where Stacy and I live, there are indigenous communities who still live in relationship to this, who do right now, and who are, of course, constantly fighting against the violence of disappearance. There are also, I know, people on the land where you are right now, Robin, and you're in the Southwest, who are seeking to remember that in relationship to the land that you live on. You know, uh, Maladoma Somme talks about how, he's like, you know, people who are not indigenous get really confused about what indigeneity is. They think that it's everybody who's just like living in balance and always listening to the land talk and whisper in their ears, and it's all like just happy all the time. He said, the only thing that's different is that we recognize that life is about relationships, and that all relationships go out of balance for either big or small reasons. And what we do, he says, is we take the time to constantly be in relationships that are moving towards balance, like addressing the multiple small and large hurts. So whatever that looks like, and that's a place I get careful because I've not been raised within that. And so I want to be careful of my own even romanticization in this moment. But I do believe that in the beginning, at various beginnings over various times, there is a place where relationship and the space to bring into balance or to seek balance, to create the conditions for that balance to emerge, that that happens. And that is integrally tied to land and to all life that is in all relationship to each other. And then something happens that is a form of cultural or collective trauma. That could be the violence of colonization. That could be the violence of a pandemic, the violence of a natural disaster, something that fundamentally shifts the collective community's ability to remember itself through the process of being with this overwhelm, this huge thing, for all the reasons that Stacy named, all of the bodies that are in that collective, the individual and in the collective soma, the dignity, the sense of, of remembering self, of feeling safe and of belonging has been shaken severely. And then there isn't a way to reclaim it. So under the forces of colonization, right? That is why the first strategy of colonization is to take away a people's language and cultural practices. So it's harder to remember the ways that we grieve, that we rage to remember who we are. Or again, a natural disaster or significant illness where the elders, the cultural keepers, the people who would remember that are gone and it doesn't stop, right? And so the cultural collective trauma, that, and that means that the children that are then raised are raised not from, not just even learning in the brain way that we learn from school, but the becomingness that happens in those first three years of life, this becomingness of becoming safety and belonging, of becoming, of having the elders around us showing us that the, what is overwhelming and too much, that there's, there's reasons for it, there's ways to move through. 
And instead, that numbness that Stacy was naming, those things that happen, that's in the adults around us. And then that shapes who we are when we are small, and that's developmental trauma. I mean, I believe that all forms of supremacy and oppression are laid through in those early precognitive stages, a form of developmental trauma. And those generations go by, and, and John Mohawk, who is Hadnasi, says that uh, culture is a community's collective agreement of the best way to survive. And so those children become adults. And, you know, we are brilliant, and it's what our mind is there to do, is to help us make sense of what's happening so that we can find our way to safety and belonging. It is the way in which, in the in Turtle Island where I live, good God-fearing Christians can go to church in the morning and attend a lynching in the afternoon and believe that there's no disruption between that. Like our minds find ways to put everything together so that we can feel safe, even if there is a numbness that's below it. So then that continues to move forward. And then, you know, shock trauma is what happens when there's just something, you know, you think a car accident, but there's some sort of a risk that happens to our body in the present moment um, that is a physical risk that is overwhelming. You know, and we have a greater likelihood for things like risk taking place if there is a numbness within us in relationship to our own life and each other. And so for me, I deeply believe that all trauma is collected and we experience it individually. And then the more trauma that has not been shifted or healed, the more isolation we have from each other, from the land around us, um, from, from spirit, from a sense of culture, it's like it's a replicating circle, a spiral. And so that is to me how disconnection from the land, our ability to treat the land as an object, is directly related to how we treat other people as object. And that all starts from these early developmental stages of experiencing our own life as an object, because somewhere in our own lines, that disruption has was ha happened and then has carried forward. Mm, thank you. Stacey, anything to add to that about how unaddressed trauma plays out around us? Yes, that was beautiful, Susan. Thank you. I, I'm like, oh, we could talk for a lot of hours about all of this. Indeed. <laughs> I think what I want to add, you know, the trauma begets trauma is so important for us to recognize. And that I also want to be aware here that I, you know, so many people have written about and thought about, it's like, how did exploitation become the way of the economy? You know, how did exploitation become the central premise or separation and exploitation become the central premise of, of culture or of identity, which is kind of where we find ourselves? I, I don't actually know the answer to that. I think many different people come from different angles. So I, I, what I want to say is, you know, separation, exploitation, whether from each other and the land and waters and air and life force begets trauma and then trauma begets trauma. And I don't know if trauma is the core of everything. I just think that trauma uninterrupted and unmended continues to repeat itself, right? What I find very hopeful, and I'm sure we'll go into this in our conversation too, is there's some profound impulse inside of us that also wants to heal. There's a profound impulse toward resilience. There's a profound impulse toward connection and interdependence. There aren't enough structures in our worlds and in our mainstream cultural practices to encourage and to feed that much. But I find it fascinating that as deeply and as multi-generational as trauma and exploitation is, there is still this impulse toward, toward wholeness and connection. 
and our broader systems, whether we look at racial capitalism or whether we look at heteropatriarchy or whether we look at ongoing colonization and disconnection and exploitation of the land, those to me, those structures need, obviously need to radically change to structures that are inviting the healing, the resilience and the interdependence but they'll continue to just churn out trauma unless we change them. So like Susan, I just really feel like all trauma is collective, even something as profoundly personal as experiences of of child abuse or experiences of abandonment. Those come out of both the intergenerational training that Susan's talking about and these broad structures that we're asked to live inside of and that keep shaping us and training us in how to think, be, and relate, right? They just keep perpetuating a kind of trauma that is so, I mean, it's devastating and it's also so unnecessary. Yes, this is why I really see, and I know, she, I know that we share this, um, Susan, but why I really see that structural change and profound personal healing are inseparable, they're co-serving. And because of, and I'm gonna throw a new thing into the mix here, really from my view, because of racial capitalism, so much about trauma healing gets very, very individualized, very defined for the individual, and mostly accessible to people with class and race privilege. Or even that like, companies, large international transnational companies are like, well, we wanna bring in some trauma healing or resilience building, the military is doing this. So as to sustain within racial capitalism longer, or so as to put a soldier back in battle sooner. So there's just this complexity when we're looking at trauma healing of really going, what are the root causes and how do we go about changing and transforming some of these root structural causes while we're also, of course, bringing as much access to trauma healing and uplifting all the places it already exists, right, inside of multiple cultures, how do we, how do, we do the both and? You've both written about how one of the key areas that movements for change need to focus on is healing from trauma. What does that look like in reality? How do movements designed around healing differ from movements designed to campaign on single issues? Are there any examples of best practice that you might like to share? Uh, Stacey? (laughs) This is so fun. Um, This is a great question. So I wouldn't say it's either or. I really think that it is movements that are looking at structural change as well as really investing in the future we're trying to build. So they're not just movements that are counter. We know that 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 doesn't work in and of itself solely. Um, And I'm going to give the example because it's also been written about publicly of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and generative somatics the organization that I co-founded and used to be the executive director of, I've, I've transitioned out of that role in the last year, but we had a, a long-term partnership with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and we co-designed this very intensive leadership development and trauma healing program for domestic worker leaders and for organizers. And that was a combination of like political education, 
communication and looking at broad strategy, along with organizing skills building, along with embodied leadership development and trauma healing. So let me just give you some examples. So we would bring in, you know, the skill of visioning, which is where you started us out with today. It's like, what is what is what we want? Not only what are we working against, what do we want? And in somatics, we call that being able to craft a declaration. Like here's the intention and the declaration of the future, either I want as a leader or we want, right, as a sector or an alliance. And then there's body-based practices that help us actually learn how do I vision, how do I declare, because mostly oppression and trauma don't teach us how to do that. I mean, what you're doing here of like, how do we imagine? There's so much about trauma and oppression that pulls back our capacity to imagine. We'd work a lot with what are our default reactions called condition tendencies in our work to trauma and oppression? How have those been embodied and how do we transform them so we don't act them out on our fellow organizers, which is what we end up doing, right? So how do we transform those? And then we had a very particular four-day session that was all about trauma and healing, where people would tell the stories of how they've been hurt, tell the stories about their longing for transformation. Many times these domestic worker leaders would say, no one has ever asked me before and no one's ever listened to my story of oppression, to my story of immigration to my story of raising other people's children when I haven't seen my own in my home country in 17 years. And then we would do body-based, hands-on healing, breath work, right? So we literally would combine the political ed with the organizing, with all this embodied leadership and trauma healing as one thing. So that's one example of what it would look like and then how those organizers organized shifted how they dealt with conflict with each other shifted. The the boldness of their vision grew because everyone had gotten the opportunity to train and practice together, right, inside of really a joint purpose. Mm. Thank you, Susan. Any any example that leaps to your mind? You know, I want to say first that it is a it's an example of the wound that we have two different words, organizing and healing as though they're two different things. And they're actually the same thing. And there are elements of organizing that are healing. Building power is healing. Telling the truth about the way a system impacts our lives is healing. Um, Finding others who have shared experience is healing. Organizing together to say no or to say yes is healing. And so they really are the same thing. Within that, the two examples that most shape me, one is in England and one is in the States, you know, I green and common, as you said in my open bio, that really impacted me, which I have no idea how much that story of green and common is carried within England, but it was a, and, and the language is the 80s, so I'm going to use binary gender language. Um, if green and common were happening right now, knowing who were there, the way we tell the gender story about ourselves would be different. But in the 80s, it was a, the language of, of women. And it was women who were, um, um, I feel really silly explaining what Greenham Common is to somebody who's in England. But it was a, you know, women organizing a peace camp around a U.S. military base on common land in England where Margaret Thatcher basically gave to Ronald Reagan land to hold uh, nuclear missiles on that were then used to fire at Libya and other places. And so it was a, an intersectional, uh, international global group of women who lived around the base doing constant direct action and also lifting up 
the relationships, again, between all of these things, how the nuclear arms race and militarism and the destruction of the land and the destruction of the common land, sexual violence, that all these things are connected. For me, being there at like, what, 21 years old and going back and forth in my early 20s was being in a place where I didn't have any of the language we have right now, but I saw at least until uh, the evictions of the camp started to happen. But in the early days, I saw spaces for women to go to when we were overwhelmed by what was happening or we were triggered, even though that wasn't the word we were using in the early 80s. Vendors to go into, care that was provided, and just this absolute awareness that the work of facing violence has its own impact on us and that it is it takes time to change the shapes of violence and how they show up those systems and along the way we have to take care of ourselves and that matters and at Greenham there that meant that there were elders so people who'd been in the work for a long time who could tell stories there was care that was Western first aid care, integrative care that was, again, spiritual, physical, emotional. And there was the space for transformation. And there was coming around the fire and making shared, you know, having shared conversations about decisions that we needed to make. So the practice of being together was the same as the practice of direct action. So all of that was healing. And I had no language for it. But then when I came back to the States, to Turtle Island, I kept looking for versions of that, right? And I also know that period of Green and Common didn't last that long because violence fought back, systems fought back and made it very difficult to hold that space. Being in the U.S., I want to really lift up a Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective, is that when I first became a body worker and I turned to studying body work because I wanted to know why it was that I would be in so many movement spaces as a community organizer working um, within queer spaces around racial and economic justice, where so often there'd be like a bunch of us in a room who like, oh my God, we love the shit out of each other. Revolution should happen tomorrow. We were wise, we cared about each other, like it was there. And then something would happen in the room, like often it was an act of racism, you know, somebody white would just say or do something that was racist. Sometimes it was sexism, sometimes it was homophobia. It would be some act of violence that would trigger. And then most of the time, and these would be multiracial spaces, most of the time, one of all the things that Stacey named her own trauma earlier would happen. We would freeze, there'd be a fight, people would leave, any number of things. But this piece that was before that sense of connection was disrupted. And very rarely did we know how to bring it back. And if we did, it was because somebody had some sort of spiritual or cultural um, power that we all recognized who helped us to move through it, you know, and that was rare. And so I wanted to know why. And so I started studying different forms of somatic work in the early 2000s, but felt some amount of um, shame with it because I felt like I was leading a revolution, right? Like I was no longer on the front lines. Um, and the, you know, how typical I'm getting older and I want to go and work in making people feel better about themselves. I'd internalized all this stuff that healing was different from organizing. And it was um, an encounter with, uh, at the first U.S. social forum with Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective, who frames this concept of the framework of healing justice, where it was the first time I saw organizers in movement who were not confused about the relationship. And I know that the, I want to name how the frame of feeling justice emerged is that many people who are part of Kindred and Cara Page in particular 
spent time with the same question I was asking that turned me to, to body work, but they turned uh, collectively. And I know that Kara spent time talking to people who, uh, elders who had been involved in the civil rights movement and who were still politically involved and asking them, how have you managed to stay? Like, how do you still have a sense of, of hope, of possibility with all the things that your body's experienced, all the places where you've seen that we've lost ground, even as we've also gained ground? And she heard, and I have permission to tell the story from Kara, is she heard stories of a range of things, which is really, again, I'm now going to repeat many of the things that Stacy said, people remembering things that they're grandparents and great-grandparents had taught them about herbs, about plant medicine, right? About plants that help when your nerves are high, right? about singing and the power importance of song and how in moments of loss, what it was to sing together, about prayer, about um, rest, about going to that place that is, um, that matters to you where the memory is good and whole, about sex, you know, about all the ways that we find to connect with each other, like all of these different ways of remembering that there is more than what this moment is telling us. And I want to say something about that on the other side, because it matters, you know, I'm not black. Um, those are not my memories. My people largely don't remember our plant roots medicine. Mostly I wasn't raised to know how to go to the lands to settle my nervous system because the systems were designed to do that for me as somebody who's raised white within a white supremacist culture, the systems are there so that I don't have to remember those things, right? Instead, the systems protect me. And if they're not, then I get to blame somebody else. So I bring that in because I do think that the more that our bodies and our lives are supported by, by the social location of supremacy and privilege is that there's unlearning along with learning. Because if we don't do that, we have danger of just turning those very practices into objects again. And so I lifted one that is grounded in land where you are right now, Rob, Greenham Common, which really struggled. I know that you're in living in a part of England where many people are asking these kinds of questions. Um, and so Greenham was an example for me. Um, what I learned from kindred and then how I apply that here in my life in Minneapolis is a part of that. And I still hold with there a little bit of a, of a tenderness and awareness that those of us who've been raised within various forms of supremacy, multiple different kinds, that there's some unlearning that is happening that's about coming back to that collective sense, which is not the same for the aspects of ourselves that have not been raised and shaped by supremacy. And I hold all the things that Stacy named within there, all the different forms. Um, thank you for all that, Susan. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to need to go and listen to this back about 30 times in a dark room <laughs> just to digest everything you're both saying. It's extraordinary. And it seems to me that, that systems of economics and politics that thrive on creating trauma, what Stacey, in your book, you referred to as systemic trauma, the drive inequality that continue to feed the systems of economics, systemic racism, criminal justice that ignore historic trauma and perpetuate the conditions that generate it have pulled off an incredible sort of confidence trick of often getting the people who are most impacted by this to vote in favour and be the most vociferous uh, supporters of those very systems. What, what does this phenomena of people who have been profoundly traumatized by something being passionate uh, defenders of it tell us about how trauma works and how it plays out in the world? Yeah, yeah. such a very large question. I, I want to respond to a couple of things Susan said and then I'll go there. You know, this, this 
exploration of like what is organizing, what is healing, and why in this context of you know, oppression, do they get defined as two different things? I think it's so beautiful what you said of they're not different things. Organizing is healing and healing can be organizing. And the other thing that I want to point out, because I feel like especially in the in the US context, there's kind of this orientation of like new better more. And when you've done th- something once, you're an expert. There are really very deep skills in organizing and very deep skills in healing to be I don't know, accountable in those areas. And so I just feel like it's something as we're all, as we're trying to in some ways reintegrate or re-understand these connections, I I also want to invite us all to be honoring of people who've been doing things for years, like honoring of what it takes to actually hold each other well, honoring of what the collective needs inside of either an amazing, beautiful vision-based campaign and organizing (laughs) or holding a really clean, very complex space of of collective healing. Um, And I also wanna point to in here, you're doing such a good job, Susan, of of pointing to folks. I really wanna point to uh, BOLD, which is Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity. And they're just doing an, a, an incredible job of, you know, the, the, the intent is a, a rebuilding of really the, the Black left infrastructure um, because it got so systematically taken apart after the civil rights movement here. But they're doing this incredible experimentation of organizing plus political education, plus embodied leadership and healing, plus very deep community building and strategy building. And I, I think there's just so much for us to... To, to keep learning, right? To keep learning in these experiments that are really relevant to our moment in time and a deep remembering simultaneously. So I, I just feel very respectful honoring in in the um, that organizing healing dance that we're in. Now to your question, Rob, and I can't wait to hear Susan's answer too. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about how in more traumatized state where safety, belonging, dignity is confused at odds inside of us, at odds in our relationship that we, where we start to mistake domination as safety, right? This is one of the tricks of both a racial capitalist system that's training us into that, right? A heteropatriarchy that's training us into thinking that domination is safety. And also trauma trains us into that, right? Like if, if I've been victimized and who I see as ha- has power is the one who dominated, one strategy to try to find safety is to adhere to and bond with the dominator, right? There's something called trauma bonding, which is really this deep nervous system, this deep internalized misunderstanding, visceral misunderstanding, that the only way for me to belong is to stay close to who's harmed me. Or the only way I can be safe is to keep identifying with domination when it is literally perpetuating harm, right, against others and also within ourselves. So when I look at the, the, the white supremacy that's taking a whole new organized form in the U.S. over these last four years, it's obviously not new here. It is the, the core, sadly, this, the United States. But when I look at even some of, you know, some of my extended family and cousins and aunts voted for Trump again. 
you know, I grew up white working class in rural Colorado. And when I get deeply into like what is happening, I think there's this deep association with domination as safety, domination as power, that the only way I can have an identity is to try to merge myself with, with that which is seen as the dominating force. So that, that is some of what I have to say, and I think it has everything to do with intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Susan? Damn. I'm going to re-listen to what you just said, how you just walked that out, because uh, I need to re-listen to that a few times. It really, really helped me. And I'm going to like really link arms with all three of us in this call, because of course that the original wounds of this land are British wounds, right? It's British colonization. It's much of them were put into place before there was such a thing as the U.S. And so this is a responsibility that the three of us all share. You know, I have no lineage other than the living in Bristol for those years. I have no ancestral lineage to, to England, but I have cultural lineage, proximity lineage, lineage for the number of generations my people have lived, you know, in the U.S. And so I really link arms with the three of us. And um, I'm not going to I just, what you just laid out, Stacy, where that brings me to next is then, as that is true, what do we do? And, you know, I think that as white folks, we really struggle loving our people in many directions across this. I mean, I think, I think Brexit, I think Trump in the U.S., these are white-on-white struggles that are old, right? The U.S. political landscape is shaped, you know, between white people by what happened when the violence of class systems in Britain came to the U.S. and then were shape-shifted into the idea of whiteness. You know, the creation of whiteness was a strategy in Virginia in the 1640s to disrupt solidarity between free Black folks, enslaved Africans, and indentured white people, which were largely English people, Irish people, Scottish people, um, and a few Germans. And out of that came this idea of whiteness. And that violence has never been healed. It completely shapes how the U.S. to this day, and, and I think that there's so much healing within supremacy. You know, that's the place when our beloveds of color turn to us and say, white folks, that's your problem. You got to deal with it. Like, would you please deal with it? Like, you know, often the strategies that come up are continuing that domination shape that Stacy just named. It's a power struggle. Who has the better analysis? Who is the right answer in our own families? Are we even allowed to be saying in our families, do we need to, you know, to completely dismiss the Trump supporters? I know the same thing has happened around Brexit in England. And the healing here, which I'm just feeling my body trembling right now while I'm talking, and this is not just words, it's how the, how the hell do we love each other? And not as an empty-headed, I will accept you no matter who you are kind of way. Um, I keep having this fantasy, and this is the first time I'm saying this aloud, and I almost stop myself in the States, of like, you know, Stacey, how do we like turn to our family who are Trump supporters and not just the ones we know, like, what is the strategy? Sometimes I just think what needs to happen is we just need to die out or really become the minority. At some point, I'm just like nihilistic about it, where I'm like, you know, at one point, but then I also have a fair amount of respect for my Italian ancestors who were not white when they first came to the US, but who became white, like the seduction of that domination and the way that that shapeshifts and the way that we're seeing it shapeshift right now, and I don't, I don't want to be careful around racializing the same as whiteness, but allegiance with what you just named around who's voting for Trump, you know, I think that the seduction of it is huge. 
And so, you know, I often think this is not about just front door, like the front door work of, you know, voter registration, all of these things. There's something spiritual and cultural and healing here. And I keep having this fantasy of over the next four years, white folks walking across Turtle Island, right, from one side to the other, just instead of coming to say, let me tell you through moral, political, et cetera, reasons why voting for all these things is wrong, is instead coming and saying, how can I be of service to you? Like, what can I do for and with you right now? And while being in service, and whoever, like, you know, and then asking, you know, how are you hurt? Can I tell you how I'm hurt? And out of that relationship, like what emerges that is real and true? Because I keep feeling like the net that created the disruption that allows for this political moment we're in, which is a white on white struggle largely, is old and ancient. And rather than try, you know, it's the place that I don't have a lot of trust in reform about things like this, is I'm more curious about like, how do I support, how am I creating a completely different neural net with my kin for whom I belong to and they belong to me, as opposed to here is the rule about how you're supposed to be in order for us to be together. Because I want enough relationship for them to feel for me, here is what you're doing and how it's hurting me. And for me to feel from them, here is why they're hurting, which is why there's this allegiance with dominance, right? And the only place I can see that as a practical thing is something that's an awful lot slower than the organizing that often white supremacy culture teaches is organizing. That's not traditional relationship building, right? This is our kin. Like, you know, national borders aren't really real. You're shaped by a different present moment being in England than, than Stacy and I are. Stacy and I are shaped by different present moments. We have maybe the same, maybe different class backgrounds, but we're all kin to each other around this harm that is older than the idea of the nation states we're a part of. And it is what's creating this specific experience of this white on white struggle that ends up meaning we don't have the capacity to actually care about each other at the level where we can go into our own discomfort because you matter more in this moment than me feeling comfortable right now. Like we need to be okay, which is what Stacy said in the very beginning when you asked us to imagine the 10 years. Wow. We are, we are, we're nearly running out of time. I feel like I've only asked about half my questions. I feel like we could go on for hours and hours and uh, maybe we need to revisit this at some point. Um, I just wondered uh, if people are listening to this and um, are moved by this, which I think people uh, will be, and are wondering how to bring this kind of approach to healing around trauma into their movements, into their activism, who are thinking, I like that idea of, of, of ending this cycle of trauma. Where would, where would they start? What do you suggest? Where, where, where's a good place for people to begin uh, this work? Um, Stacey? Oh, geez, it's such a big question. There are many places where this this looking, this experiment is happening. So in many ways, I would encourage people first to go, where is it already happening? Either in their communities um, or in their movements or their sectors. You know, for me, I mostly know where this is happening in, in the context of the US more than I do internationally. Healing justice, uh, kindred, uh, 
song, Southerners on New Ground, Bold, Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, Generative Somatics, and many, many other places are really looking to integrate. And I'm going to say healing and transformation, um, because also we really look at embodied leadership, like how do we want to lead, be, and build differently, which is not always what comes to mind when people say the word healing. So really looking at questions like, what practices are we in? What purposeful practice are we in together? What default embodiment, and Susan was speaking to this, but what have we default embodied around supremacy that we might need to collectively learn and change? And it's not only learning through reading and listening and watching and study, those are all very important, but it's also where does it live in our tissues, in our reactions, in our behaviors? Um, what's our relationship to land and what's our relationship to those who are in more relationship with land or to indigenous populations? So, so these are questions. There's questions to start with. And then you can go, who's already exploring this or practicing or in practice that we could share with, learn with, organize with. So again, it depends on where folks are at. What I do want to, again, I'm going to put my flag up here. <laughs> is that there is a lot happening, like trauma has become popular and embodiment is becoming popular right now. And neuroscience is supposedly the new answer to everything. And what I wanna say is it's so important for us to have a very deep social analysis and how we're listening to and taking those things in because many of them in the mainstream are exactly replicating the dynamics of racial capitalism, are making experts out of the same old people, right? Very predictable, are serving the same old people, including corporations. Th that I just want to say, please watch how some of this stuff is coming and the lack of social analysis, the lack of a really deep looking as to that, how we've been shaped to even hold trauma and healing. So again, coming from this combination of, of equity, reconnection or connection with the land, social justice and embodied transformation or trauma healing need to all be part of one circle. And when you see those circles separated, please start asking a lot of questions <laughs> um, and look for the places where they're not being separated, where they're being built into, into one circle. I'm so glad you just said that, Stacey. All of it, but especially this piece. Because, you know, Rob, right now it's like somebody just has to Google somatics embodiment and there is no shortage of trademark sites that are out there. Um, first notice what it is that you're already doing, right? Again, the the map that I like to use, not that it is comprehensive or anything, but it just helps me, is like, what are the practices you have to remember who you are in the present moment, right? Um, do you have practices that support, that support you? Um, what are the practices you have that support you to remember land, not as an object to tend to be responsible to, but as something that you feel and that you feel a relationship with? And what are the practices you have that are about remembering kin and community? Um, other people, you know, and to feel a sense of connection and then notice the places where they aren't, where there is, um, where they are hard, where they don't go far enough, where there's disconnect, where there's a feeling of, of mistrust. And then those are the magic places, right? Those are the places to start. Because healing and organizing have been perceived and then have evolved separately because of that Western wound that separates the mind from the body, the mind from spirit, 
because of that, tons of wisdom within folks who have been for generation after generation after generation, been doing learning and work. You know, and I'm talking now specifically about Western folks. I'm not talking if you who are listening to this come from a tradition and have access to a cultural tradition that is of your people, that brings them together. Fabulousness. You don't need me to answer the question for you because you have, um, you have answers for the questions that I have. Um, so I'm speaking to people who have been shaped by that disruption, that separation. There is like, you know, the lineage of whew, so much healing and spiritual practice and cultural practice that usually doesn't talk about social oppression and social trauma. It doesn't. So you can take body work classes, you know, but they're not necessarily going to talk about social collective historical generational trauma. And if they do, they almost always only talk from the place of how have you been hurt? Very rarely are there the embodiment, the somatic practices for what it means to stay in your dignity, your sense of connection, and very with clarity and lack of confusion say, I or my people have done this, and this is true, without making any excuses at all. That is very rarely contained within those healing practices. Those wisdoms exist within organizing, for sure. So many different organizings. But then there are so many different wisdoms, but then there are less practices in organizing for how to hold the grief, the rage, um, the pain that comes up as a result of doing the work. So, you know, I think that what Neither Stacey or I are giving you is like, here's the 10 point list. Because even if we were talking, we were all in Minneapolis and we were talking, I would still not give the 10 point list. I feel like most of what I do in my practice, both one on one and collectively, is support people to find out for themselves, to listen, to remember what that practice looks like. Um, I think that Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, is a really lovely book that is about organizing. But when I first read it, I'm like, oh my God, this is like body work on the page, but it's all about organizing because it's all about how, you know, how evolution, how ancestors, how systems emerge as opposed to how we force um, direction on them before they've emerged. So that's still not very concrete, right? <laughs> so I'm like going, so listen with caution. <laughs> and even if, and even just the advice to read Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown is beautiful advice as well. It's an extraordinary book. And Stacey's book, Absolutely. for sure. I mean, there's so many books right now. I feel like one of the things I want to share with you, I mean, I can just think of like just practice. Resma's book too. Yeah, Resma's book, Food for Our Grandmothers, for sure. There's a number of lovely books emerging right now. Um, um, there's books around transformative justice that carry pieces of this. Resma's book, My Grandmother's Hands, that carries pieces of this. So, you know, we can totally, I would love to share 10 books to put in the credits. Wonderful. Do. Actually, that would be lovely. And we can put them in the description of this podcast. Yeah. Good idea. Wonderful. Well, sadly, we must draw this to a close. And I'd like to just thank you so, so, so much for such a rich and deep and fabulous conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for gathering us and also for what you do. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for, um, you know, we don't, I don't know you. And so I was really curious, like how you were going to shape this. And it's felt like such a gift the way you've shaped it. And so I also honor the clearly the listening thinking and the work that you've already done that enabled you to shape it this way. It really felt like even though Stacey and I did most of the talking, it felt for me like a conversation amongst the three of us because of how you shaped it. So thank you for that. So if listeners want to find out more about the work of both of our guests, there'll be some links in the description. 
My thanks to you for listening, to everyone who supports this podcast, and as always, Ben Adekop for sound production and theme music. See you next time. Thank you.